0: Well, good morning. I thank you, Seth, for the uh, passage that you read to us before we prayed. I'm sure it was not uh, a coincidence that you read to us about men and women of God taking refuge under the shadow of the wings of God. We're going to see someone do just that this morning. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We've made it now to the second chapter. And what we've seen all of the way uh, through so far is that our attention has been focused in, in a few specific ways. Uh, last week, we were focused in on the person of Naomi in particular. Uh, this week, our focus shifts yet again, and we fixate on the person of Ruth as she wakes up now uh, in the land of Jerusalem, in the city of Bethlehem, and begins to, uh, to provide for herself and for Naomi Uh, we'll be looking this morning at the first 13 verses in particular of this chapter. And I want us to start by just hearing what it is we're going to see uh, in the course of events this morning. Uh, Ruth is going to wake up this morning and she's going to set out from their home. She's going to be doing that in a way that is really hoping against hope. And she's going to be stepping out in complete faith. And the way she speaks of this is she's trusting that the Lord is going to provide for her someone who will look upon her with kindness and favor. This is what is in her mind as she wakes up and as she embarks, as chapter 1 begins. And what she's going to find when she steps out in faith to do this is a particular man. Listen to the description of this man. She's going to find a man of the tribe of Judah, ...from the town of Bethlehem. And when she finds him, his kindness to her is going to far surpass anything... ...that she could have hoped to find on that day. I wonder if there's anything of significance there in that description. As I said, we're only going to get as far about as verse 13 this morning... ...but I would like us to begin by hearing the entire chapter read. This is the, we could call this the second scene... In the book of Ruth, this is going to be the uh, Boaz and Ruth scene, and the scene consists of three situations, three three conversations, really. In this way, it's sort of like a play that's divided up into scenes, and within those scenes, you usually have some setup information, and you have a number, usually, of of interactions before that scene closes. Well, there's three interactions in this scene, and we'll take two weeks to get through all three of them. But the way they break up is this, as you're looking over chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 7 are where we see the interaction of Boaz and his servant. Verses 8 to 16, then, is the, the main uh, point of this chapter, the conversation between Boaz and Ruth. And then verses 17 to 23 involves Ruth recounting those events and that discussion with Boaz uh, back to Naomi when she gets home. So those are the three sections that we'll work through. We'll get about halfway through the second of those sections this morning. Uh, Let's begin by reading all of chapter 2. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "'May he be blessed by the Lord, "'whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead.'" Naomi also said to her, "'This man is a close relative of ours, "'one of our redeemers.'" And Ruth the Moabite said, "'Besides, he said to me, "'You shall keep close by my young men "'until they have finished all my harvest.'" And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, "'It is good, my daughter, "'that you go out with his young women.'" lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We begin with the first of these three conversations. Uh, This one is centered around Boaz and his servant, which we read in verses 4 to 7. Verses 1 to 3 give us some really important information to set us up to understand the context of that conversation. It gives us a set of details. Look at verse 1 to see the first of these details. This gives us background information about the person of Boaz himself. Verse 1 said this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, if you just look at verse two, you notice that this this does not follow into verse two as if it's some sort of a part of the plot line or the storyline. This is information intended for us as the hearers, as the readers. And what we're getting here is what we call dramatic irony. We know something now about the situation that Ruth and Naomi do not know yet. They're not going to come to figure this out until as late as verse 20 in this chapter. Ruth will know his name before that, but she's not going to really know who this is that she's talking to in terms of his significance, and Naomi's not going to find this out until late in the chapter. But the author gives this to us here now, and what it's supposed to do for us is create a sense of curiosity and a sense of anticipation. What has just changed here by this man coming onto the scene? And you notice that he's pointed out as a man of the clan of Elimelech. Already we're, we're being given enough to know this is someone who could play a significant part in the events. But then we move right into verse 2. And so we're left to wonder and to sort of get excited. Uh, We'll talk more about the descriptions of Boaz uh, when we get to verse 20 next week, because there's several things that are said here that are really important. Uh, But the situation here continues to be developed coming into verse 2. And what we find out in verse 2 is just exactly how Ruth is going to come to be in the field when Boaz shows up. Remember, we're being set up here in the first three verses to, to understand enough to follow the conversation between Boaz and his servant. In verse 2, we read this, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now this is, I think, a good time to stop and to talk about what is happening in this context with the gleaning thing. It was mentioned just a bit last week that they arrived in Bethlehem right at the beginning of the barley harvest. And we said that that was significant. Well, what is going on here? What is she asking about when she requests to go out and to glean? What we end up witnessing here is something that God has put into his law for his people in the Old Testament. And he did this specifically to provide for the destitute, the needy, so that they might be able to feed themselves. We read about these gleaning laws and this entire practice. This is an important part of this agrarian society, that they would would handle their harvest in this way. Uh, It's described for us in two places, Leviticus 19, and then it's repeated in Deuteronomy 24. Let me just quickly read, it's just a few verses. Let me read to you how this is worded in God's law. What was he actually commanding them to do in these contexts? So the first is Leviticus 19. Verses 9 and 10. This is what God told them. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard. Nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So we get a good overview there of what God's intent was for them. When this is repeated before the people go into the promised land, when it's repeated in Deuteronomy 24, we get even a little bit more clear of a description. Listen to what it says there, starting in verse 19, and see if you can pick out any details that, uh, that, that even add to the picture compared to that of Leviticus. Deuteronomy 24:19, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go back over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Therefore, I command you to do this. In particular, it's the end there. We get this sense of what God is doing all the way through his law. He is instructing them as to how they should live in the land. He's also teaching them through every one of these things that he's giving them. He's causing them to look back in this case. Remember where they have come from. So that it might cultivate a sense of sympathy and care for those who are struggling and you notice the threefold repetition the sojourner the fatherless and the widow they're to be provided for like this so this is what's happening here in Ruth chapter 2 with this gleaning this is a god ordained and a, a you can see it there a mandated part of their agrarian society and it raises a couple of questions for us in terms of what's just happened with Ruth and Naomi the first question has to do with Naomi Why isn't she going out to glean with Ruth? She doesn't go with her. It's not even her idea to do this. It's Ruth's idea. And Ruth goes alone. Why doesn't Naomi go with her? It's something we we, we shouldn't speculate too much about because the passage is clearly having us direct our attention onto Ruth. But surely it's something we're meant to notice, that Naomi does not go out. She, She is not at all too old to do this. This is intended in particular for widows who would have typically been around her age. We have no indication of uh, physical limitation or an injury or something like that. It's hard to not hear this and to, to think that we're getting just yet another glimpse of the bitterness that she has given into. Here, she's made it back. She's just made this declaration to the women Of Bethlehem that we saw last week and now they wake up and she wakes up with no sense of driving purpose to even go on living even find a way to move on there's a sense of hopelessness it would seem to me in what we see in Naomi here and we see it in two ways not not just that she does not go with Ruth to glean but also that she doesn't even warn Ruth about potential dangers that she's going to face Surely that's important because we can tell from the way the story goes on, Ruth is stepping out into a potentially dangerous situation to go and do what she's about to do. Even Boaz, as we'll see, has to, has to order his own servants two times not to abuse her. And he uses a word, abuse, there with quite a wide range of meaning. It's not pretty. She is in potential danger as she goes out on her own and in particular as a Moabite to do this. Naomi makes it clear that she understands that because at the end of the chapter, in verse 22, after Ruth has recounted the day to her, do you remember what she said there in verse 22? It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. You think, well, goodness, that might have been helpful warning and information to have known back in verse two here, but she doesn't say anything, she just says go my daughter. It seems to me that this is a picture that we're just continuing to learn more about how Naomi is doing as she wakes up that morning. That's one thing that is sort of brought to the surface here with Ruth's request to Naomi. Um, The second has to do with Ruth, the second question. How much does Ruth understand about the gleaning laws in this new land? Does she have a, a complete picture of what her rights are here and how this is supposed to work? Or is she coming into this with some level of ignorance about the law? And the reason that we would ask that question is because of the way that she goes about this. She resolves, you see it there in verse 2, she resolves to go out and glean. She says, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. In other words, her, her plan consciously is to go out with humility and to begin to ask if she can do this she's looking for someone who is going to be willing to show her kindness and that's how she's thinking about the gleaning that she's going to do that day verse 7 is going to tell us that the servant that she she came to boaz a servant and asked him for permission to glean in their field but you've just heard the words of the law she didn't have to do that She didn't need to ask for permission. The law gives her the right to do this as a sojourner and as a widow. So why is she taking this approach? Is she ignorant of the law to some degree or not? What's interesting to me is when I'm thinking about that question, it seems like no matter how you answer that, sort of the same thing about Ruth is shown either way you answer that question. If she is ignorant about the law, here to some degree then think about what initiative and courage that shows in her that she didn't even understand this to be something within her rights and yet she gets up and is willing to go and put herself in this place hoping someone will show her kindness i'm sure we all know what that feels like to be put in a place of great disadvantage and need where we have to go cast ourselves onto the mercy of someone else. Uh, you put the hostility in there with this. This, is, this would be then a tremendous act of courage on her part if she's ignorant of her rights here. If she's not ignorant, if the answer is no, if the answer is that she somehow has gotten a complete picture of her rights here, then the fact that she's coming with this posture and this humility would probably suggest that she's going out Fully conscious and aware of the sort of atmosphere she's going to be working in. And we remember the time period this is taking place in. Just because something is in the law at this point does not necessarily mean it's going to be lived out in every field that you're going to go to. doesn't mean that every field owner is going to necessarily care about their obligations. And as we said, Boaz himself has clearly had to tell his servants to leave her alone. So this is a real risk. If she is cognizant of her rights and yet she goes out, willing to to commit herself to someone's mercy in this, then that would suggest that she understands the threat that she's walking into. All of this is just building a case, as we're going to see, for the uh, the faith-filled steps that Ruth is taking. So as we're getting this interaction set up between Boaz and his servant, we've so far gotten two pretty important pieces of information. We've learned a lot about Boaz in this, uh, with some good foreshadowing going along with it. We've learned some things about Ruth and Naomi. There's one more thing that we need to have at the forefront of our mind before we hear the conversation with Boaz and his servant. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us about Ruth, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. There, there's some helpful cultural information to add into this to help us to have a picture of what she's doing. And she, she gets up from the city and she goes out to the field to glean. The field, I was surprised, the, the, the field was not... What I just had in my own mind—I I, I pictured things like uh, like my in-laws and their uh, the arrangements of their farmland—and uh, it's not quite like that at all. Listen to this description of how fields worked in that time. I'm quoting here: Like fields elsewhere in the ancient Near East, these were carefully apportioned sections of a large tract of land nearby one individual might own several such pieces which need not be adjacent to one another. To take advantage of all available land, no visible fences or boundaries were used. Rather, each field was identified by the name of its owner. Such a patchwork of property, of course, left to chance the selection of the owner in whose field she would work. I hope that's helpful for you like it was helpful for me. So now I can picture Ruth wakes up, gets permission to go, and what she walks to is she just walks to the field, a large tract of land that was set up for, for cultivation, which was owned by a number of different people and with apparently not much of a rhyme or reason to it, random tracts. So what she's planning to do then, it would seem, is to just basically walk up to that big apportioned set of land and fall in line with whosever servants she happens to walk into. It depends on which place in the circle that she walks up to. And what the author tells us about this as he says there in verse three, she happened to come to Boaz's field. That happened to is the translation of two words. You have a verb meaning for something to happen or to take place. And then you have a noun that means, it's their word for chance or luck. So he's, he's saying here, uh, by chance, she happened upon the particular piece that was owned by Boaz. One person translates it with the phrase, as luck would have it. I mean, the author puts it that way on purpose. Now you tell me, what do you think? Do you think the author is ascribing this to random chance here? Or do you think it's, an, it's, it's a demonstration that sarcasm was not invented in the late 20th century? And we we have, and I love these sorts of things that remind us um, of the humanity of the person writing this, and of the fact that that just like us, these authors are amazed and astounded as they see the providence of God on display in history. And how does he choose to put that to us? Well, sort of in a tongue-in-cheek way. I imagine this was an interesting guy in his personal life who the Lord uses to write this story for us. You can get a sense of how he, how he interacts. As luck would have it, what do you know? She happened to come to this particular piece of land. Which, by the way, if Boaz is the worthy or prominent man that he's, that he's called in verse 1, uh, that, that, that clearly entails wealth as well. The, the lunch party he's going to have does that as well. He owns more than one piece of land. And she comes to this one, but then the coincidence continues in verse 4. Verse 4 says, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, he, the author's not quoting someone who's saying behold, like behold my sheep, look at this. He's talking to us as the reader and saying, behold. They do that in the Old Testament when they're about to tell us something surprising or unexpected. And so we get the sense here, the coincidence just continues to compound on itself as if it weren't enough that she happened to enter the field at one of his properties. He happens to come to that particular piece of property Uh, at just the right time and check on it when she happens to be within view so that he can notice her and inquire of her. Can you tell by this point that God is all over the details of this situation? Think about what this tells us about our God, about the God that is guiding your life and to whom you are entrusting your future. Think about what it tells us about that God if he rules over the events and circumstances of life at this level. Think, too, about what this tells us about the wisdom of Ruth's decision to risk that morning. She woke up newly allegiant to the God of Israel, whose land she has now chosen to commit her entire future, in spite of her reception by Ruth and her reception by everyone else, she's entrusted herself to the God of this people. And she got up that morning and decided, I'm I'm just gonna go out and try to get us some food so that we don't starve. And I'm going to trust that someone will find me and who will be favorable to me. That was a risk on her part. If this God is involved at this level, what does that tell us about her risk? It tells us that her risk was the right one. We'll say more about risk a little further on. There's so much for us to learn from what we're seeing here because her risk is not the kind of risk that is sort of glorified today, the sort of uh, go to Vegas and, and, be, uh, and just, just uh, walk on the wild side kind of risk, bet against the odds kind of risk. There's a great deal of foolish risk that we can take she is not holding up as an example of foolish risk. She's being held up as an example of a child of God who was willing to step out without the future being known because she trusts in the promises and goodness of her God. It's an example for us to remember. At this point, though, we're coming into verse 4. We're set up to hear the interaction between Boaz and his servant. Let me read again verses 4 to 7. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And stop there. So are you picturing this interaction in your mind? Here, here has come now Boaz. He greets his reapers, and they return the greeting. Uh, we're not meant, I don't think, to, to, to just assume a great deal of godliness there, because they respond with The Lord bless you. This is the people that he's going to have to command to leave Ruth alone later. Who knows how they're doing, but that's not the point of the passage. We're getting a sense of Boaz and how he treats people, aren't we? And he comes and he speaks to his subordinate and asks him in verse 5 about this new woman. She certainly did stand out. This is not exactly a pluralistic society like we are living in. And here is a Moabite woman who has suddenly shown up she's not the only foreigner in Israel but this is still going to be something that's going to draw attention and given the fact that the author all the way through this book keeps calling her Ruth the Moabite even though we know she's a Moabite even though the the fact that he keeps bringing it up to us should make clear to us that her Moabiteness continues to be an issue in her story so he asks about her and the servant answers with two points of emphasis The first is, he says, this is the Moabite woman, the one who came back with Naomi. You get a pretty clear sense that this story has been big news. At the end of chapter 1, the whole town was stirred at Naomi's return, but they only acknowledged her existence there. They didn't acknowledge Ruth, but that doesn't mean they didn't notice her. And this is probably happening very soon after their arrival, which means that the news is traveling quite quickly. So this is what the servant uh, points out first. Uh, This is that Moabite, you know, the one who came back with Naomi, the one everyone's been talking about. The second thing that he emphasizes in his description is how she has behaved. She came and asked permission to glean. She did it the first thing in the morning. And since she started, she's barely stopped working. This is what stands out in his mind as Boaz asks, who is this? The final statement that he gives, if you have another translation of the Bible, it might read quite differently. And that's because the part that the ESV translates, except for a short rest, is a very hard statement to know how to translate out of the Hebrew. It gives translators a lot of trouble. And that's because they like to use very few words in Hebrew. So what it literally says is, this, her dwelling, the house, a little. So how would you want to phrase that into a coherent English sentence? Well, they have the same trouble. So the New American Standard, for example, translates it like this. He's, it says that she uh, has continued from early morning until now, and she has been sitting in the house for a little while. It, it imagines her being caught by Boaz, not caught in a bad way, but being seen by Boaz right when she's finally taking a break. Most of the translations, though, don't see this as saying she was on a break. They simply see it as a statement of how little she has rested. And either way you go, you can tell the point is the same. Uh, It's that one. She's, She's hardly rested here today. And it's at this point in verse eight that Boaz has learned what he needs to know. Because he calls Ruth over herself and he begins to talk with her. But you know what's noticed as we go through his conversation with her, he kind of already knew everything he needed to know as soon as the servant told him that this was the Moabite who had come with Naomi. Because he's already been thinking about this woman that he has never met. He's already been impressed And humbled and struck by the by the picture that she that that she is to their people now what he says to her here is going to be the starting point for us next week as well because we're going to look very closely at Boaz himself next week um, and his significance in the story and his significance in the entire progression of the biblical story. But this morning, we're going to hear what he says to her, and simply take note of how this informs us about Ruth's place in things. So let me reread verses 8 to 13. Follow along with me. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And just to throw in, how is it a coincidence that that sounds almost exactly what God commanded Abraham to do when He called him out of out of his land to a land he did not know? Interesting. Verse twelve: The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now there's a lot of things for us to notice here. First of all, do you notice that Ruth has found something that far exceeds what she even hoped to find back in verse 2? She she cast out in the morning, walking into probably known expected personal risk and danger in a foreign land where she was looked upon with hostility, it would seem. And she was utterly depending on the notion that she would find someone who would look upon her with favor, meaning someone who would actually allow for her what the law allows. This is what she was hoping for. Well, she's found that in Boaz. But she's found much more than that. What she is experiencing goes beyond what the law commands. He had to let her glean. He didn't have to personally oversee her safety. He had to let her glean. But he did not have to secure for her a lasting place with his group. And throughout the harvest, in fact, end of this section throughout the whole of the harvest season barley and wheat he had to let her glean but he didn't have to grant her access to the water vessels that were for the men in verse 9 he had to let her glean but he certainly didn't have to give her (coughs) he didn't have to give her a seat at his table as we're going to see him do next week in verse 14 I wonder, do any of those uh, didn't-have-tos sound familiar to you? Do you know any other Gentiles? I'll ask it this way. Do you know any other Gentiles who venture to come before a Jew of the tribe of Judah from the town of Bethlehem and come to him pleading God's word who are then given kindness beyond measure, beyond all hope of expectation, and are even granted a seat of honor at his very table. You know any Gentile like that? I know a few. I'm looking at a room full of them. That's you. If you belong to God by the adoption that he grants through faith in his son, that's exactly what happened to you. It's really striking in fact. I mean, Ruth can say of Boaz, if you put verse 10 and verse 13 together, Ruth can say of Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes? You have comforted me and spoken kindly to me. Even though I'm not one of your servants, she can say that of Boaz. And we can say, Of the future son of Boaz, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can say some of these things. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us through our great Redeemer. One will scarcely die even for a righteous man, but God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That last bit is Romans 5, 8, isn't it? Verse 10 of that chapter continues to underscore how unworthily we stood before him as he chose to pour his love out upon us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This connection between us and Ruth should not surprise us at all, because Ruth is nothing more and nothing less than a sinner. Saved by grace. Same as the rest of us. By grace, by his grace, he saved her by means of her faith response to him. And none of it was her own doing. None of it originated with her. It was a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. She's described in in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But there's a piece of that Ephesians too that is worth us taking note of. It's that through faith part. By grace, we are saved through faith. We get actually in Ruth now a picture of the truth of that, of the necessity of that element of this salvation story that God tells with all of his people. And we have to mention it because Boaz's praise of Ruth in verses 11 and 12 requires us to be really clear about this. None of this that's happening to Ruth would have happened if she had not taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. As he says of her in verse 12. When she decided, by the grace of God, but as an exercise of her own will, God never believes for us. He renews us so that we might believe. When she chose in verse 16 to cast herself onto the mercy and faithfulness of the God of Israel, of Yahweh, and not of the Moabite God. When she did that, she was transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And we know that the same thing is the case for us here. All of the blessings and promises that we've been thinking about that apply to us as they apply to Ruth. All of these beautiful passages like Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 that we've been reading from. Listen, for for anyone in this room who has not put their trust in the name of Jesus as their Savior, none of those blessings currently apply to you. They are not yours simply because you are sitting in this room this morning. They were not Ruth's simply by marrying Naomi's son. Her access to the blessings of God's faithfulness didn't belong to her in the early parts of chapter one of this book. They came to belong to her in chapter one, verse 16, when she declared Yahweh to be the God and governor of her future welfare. And when she got to Israel then, all she did was live that out. She lived out that faith. Certainly she lived wisely and with deliberative care but she was living out the convictional faith that she had in her God. And with that, God led her right to the love and protection and blessings of Boaz. This is the right picture for us to end with on our minds. My friends, we are not called, you know this, we are not called to know the future. We are not called to act only when we have perfect confidence in what the result of those actions are going to be. We certainly are not called to live a life paralyzed by fear because we don't know what will come. That would be a life of faithlessness. We are called to believe that God in Christ has drawn near to us, that he reigns over us, And we are called to live in the light of that peaceful confidence in our God who is sovereign over his creation. This is the kind of boldness that we see put on display for us in our text this morning. It's the kind of boldness that you and I are set free in Christ to enjoy. It's those kinds of risks that we are set free in our Lord to take in this life. Risks that are taken out of love, and risks that come from choosing to entrust ourselves, our entire well-being, the outcomes of our decisions, to the one who is always faithful. And as we continue in our passage next week, we will see, we will continue to see, the love that God has in store for his children and how right we are every time We commit our future into His hands. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we are again grateful. We sit trembling under Your Word. We thank You for the food that You have fed us with. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that You would be at work through Your Spirit as we go, as we go through our week, as we have countless choices, Difficult circumstances, things that we are afraid of, things that we feel easily confident in, in our own strength. Lord, help us to frame our thinking around these sorts of pictures of your sovereign love and control and care. We thank you, Lord, for so faithfully and and constantly reminding us of how much bigger you are than we We love you and we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. We'll be dismissed with the words of Galatians 6, 18. Short and sweet in the way of benedictions. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.